0: This is episode 78 of The New Disruptors. I never metafilter I didn't like with Matt Howey. Permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. Thanks again this week to Cards Against Humanity, which is helping sponsor our new indie ads. If you're a solo or small company that makes interesting products or services that fit the ethos of the new Disruptors, you can get an ad underwritten in part by Cards Against Humanity for $50 for 30 seconds and $100 for 60 seconds and reach our audience of incredibly intelligent people who recognize quality and are looking for things that are made by independent creators, makers, producers, facilitators, and the like. Go to newdisrupt.org slash indie dash ads to find out more information, or just go to our website and click on Indie Ads on any page to find out more about how you can place an independent ad on the New Disruptors. This show is also supported directly by patrons like Gravity Fish, Granny Ogland, and Elliot Payne. You can become a direct supporter of this podcast at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Go to Patreon.com slash New Disruptors, and you can pledge as little as $1 a month that goes towards the production costs of this show. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast dedicated to the proposition that Godwin was an optimist. Matt Howie founded Metafilter, a well-moderated forum for discussions about interesting things that expanded to also answer questions. At just a few weeks under 15 years old, it's a veteran of many internet life cycles. In the last couple of years, however, Metafilter began to face an existential challenge, which we'll talk about today, along with its history, its nature, and its future. Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: oh, thanks for having me Glenn.
0: It is such a pleasure. You are a fixture of the internet, and in that i don 't think of the internet without you and metafilter it, a there 's a number of people like that, and I think yeah, you know, i think like what was, what was life like before matt because i don't <laughs> i don 't remember what i didn 't hear about you because you 've always been involved with interesting, often really generous things that give back to like the community kind of more like the earlier days of the net before it went so commercial. Has that been an intentional thing that you 've try to be involved in, in things that lift everyone's boat?
1: Uh, I definitely came from the academic web and sort of the academic roots of the internet or, you know, I guess aside from military, uh, (laughs) most of the internet is, well, especially the web is truly academic, you know, started from Tim Berners-Lee doing physics papers. Uh, so like in the mid nineties, you know, the mosaic started showing up on computer, you know, I was an undergraduate on, uh, like shared computers. There was a big M, you know, mosaic thing. And I sort of played with that a little bit. And, uh, you know, I was in grad school and used the internet extensively. So, and then I, my first real web job was actually at UCLA. So I'm I was still in the academic world. And, um, uh, you know, that was sort of the mandate from at UCLA was basically share everything you do. Oh, that's great. So we, my, I was hired to basically work on Blackboard had just like launched and uh ucla was trying to get websites for every single class uh like an outgoing chancellor said it in like 1996 or 1997 like in his last three months he just said by next year like every course will have its own website and it's it was pretty insane for like late 96 to (laughs) say that and and he leaves and people go wait what how, like all the computer groups, every department at UCLA kind of has a computer group that oversees, you know, that section of the university. So I think they had, you know, lots of quick meetings and they got lots of big budgets. And I was sort of hired to help out on, We, you know, they had to build a CMS. And uh, the group I was in that covered social science, uh, the whole social science world, like anthropology and economics and po- poli-sci and stuff like that, they were like, we're going to make an open source version of a cms that any other university can use we're gonna use this brand new language called php or i think it <laughs> i can't remember the first one had an f in it i mean before it even became php oh, and uh, that
0: sounds familiar
1: and I, and like the other half of the school was like oh we'll just buy this brand new commercial product called blackboard which you know it's still around and everyone hates and it's sort of the awful cms of schools right now
0: we were talking before the podcast about the content so cms but i think all my listeners by now i think we talk about CMSs in every other episode but the content management system that that becomes like a defining characteristic because whatever constraints you build in however much money or cleverness you have you know if you're doing it for free or if you're you know have a hundred billion dollar yeah. budget whatever it is it's still uh it's still constrains what you can do. So if you don't build in a way to make it easy to have animations or, you know, movies embedded in your system, you're not going to have them until somebody has the motivation or money to put them in. And that could totally affect the, you know, the next 10 years of development.
1: Yeah, it's weird. I th- I, I like to think that like communities, um, the founder of a community sort of permeates everything that follows. And I, I often think like whatever foundational CMS something, some publication starts with is basically going to, be with it forever.
0: Yeah, you, cuz you find and what that's where the cruft comes from, right? And uh yeah. when I back in the mid uh like late 90s, I was uh I was freelancing for the New York Times and they had this ATEX system which was the super advanced computer system of the 80s to drive newspaper typesetting and production and it was totally extraordinary in its day but by 1998 it was like something from the 1800s and I was one of the only freelancers who ever figured out how to dial up a modem into their system and file stories directly into the CMS by by modem and that was holding you know so they used that I mean they had to convert out of it but like that it was as bad as still being in metal type and um it's just interesting how that holds organizations back because they have so much not just like training and money invested but it's almost a mindset and and you see that even today the new york times that innovation report that got leaked you know or maybe distributed and pretended it was a leak after uh, jill amerson was fired a lot of that was about hey these are the things we should be doing digitally and we are still so broken up and we think about print and there's you know we need this kind of feature and a lot of it was cms stuff it was like the cms should support us being able to do x you know look at Quartz or look at these other sites that started up like vox and recode they can do this we should be able to as well yeah yeah definitely but it's well, I, you know, and that's why you're talking about CMSs. So, so after UCLA, I know you were an early person at uh, at Blogger, which helped mm-hmm. define, you know, I mean, blogs. Blogger came after the concept of weblogs, but it really helped solidify and define what a blog was. Where were you in the in the in the scheme of things? Were you sort of on the programming side? Did you get involved in strategy as things were being developed?
1: Um, it was uh, so. It launched Blogger launched in like summer of '99. It was sort of the first popular, widespread software Mm -hmm. all the other early bloggers i mean had written their own systems because there was none so everyone was either had their own content management system they made for themselves or they were using flat html and they figured out some workflow to make that work but uh
0: there was dave Weiner's uh front uh, userland frontier (laughs) which was an outlining tool but he built early blogging capability into it he was an an ur blogger
1: as yeah. well yeah and there was probably you know a handful of people using his stuff but for the most part it's like the the world of television in 1948 where the television engineers are making the tv shows because they know how to operate the cameras as well you know so blogger comes out and regular people can blog for the first time but it required you had your own server and you ftp'd all your stuff up to it but um it was good in that it was all flat files and stuff and so yeah like in uh, early, I think it was January 2000, I think in, through 99, I just sort of met Ev and, and Ev Williams and Meg, Meg Horhan and all, Paul Bausch, the other people that all worked at Pyra on Blogger. And, you know, I was sort of constantly emailing them and giving them feature ideas and we were talking about things. And eventually Ev just said, Hey, you know, why don't you come visit and, you know, we should chat. And so I sort of spent the weekend in San Francisco and Chatted up and tried to see where the future was, uh, and um, by south by southwest, I think of that year, March mm-hmm. they were like, You can start April first <laughs> you know they were trying to secure funding at the same yeah. time, so they'd got some O'Reilly money um, and some other money, and they had like Pirate about half a million dollars uh to you know hire up five to ten people and and you know make a go of it.
0: I, I got to get Tim O'Reilly on the show at some point. Cause even though he runs what's now a kind of, it's sort of like I I don't want to say vast. It's like, it's, it's sort of sprawling and complicated, but whenever you, you scratch at, a, at early, interesting internet stuff, Tim O'Reilly had a hand in it, like a uh, global network navigator in the 97 yeah. and blogger and like even safari books. Like that was a very, very, very early online subscription ebook thing that, that still people are fighting to find a model that's like that but uh
1: yeah and i think he was i mean this is all pre o'reilly tech ventures or whatever mm-hmm. it's called OATV. um yeah but i mean he tells you he's told the world his entire plan he's just like oh i look at the edges the bleeding edge of hacker culture <laughs> and just figure that's three years ahead of time so i just look at what they had just dropped and that'll be the next thing people <laughs> pick up i mean he's it's he's totally always right. he's always right about it and i could see it like O'Reilly just had that Internet of Things conference, and I heard from friends that went to it that there were just so many wacky whack like just crazy stories, crazy projects, and I'm like that that'll those things will all be normal in five years so
0: well, I, I keep going back to this thing. I wrote a piece for Wired, um, their Giga Trends piece in 2001 or 2002, something like that. It was like, what are the big trends in the next 10 years? And they said, hey, you should look into this thing called rapid prototyping. And I talked to people who I thought were out of their minds because I'm like, I don't have a material science background, but I have a good, strong science background. I knew what technology was capable of. And they're like, we'll be printing food. We'll be blah. And I'm like, you're nuts. That's like 50 years away. And you know, it just shows you got to listen to people carefully because pretty much everything I was told 10 years ago, I mean, we're printing larynxes now. So, uh, yeah. it's, it's going pretty well. I, I don't want to get too far off talk, but I realize like <laughs> that, but it's interesting. You've, you've had a lot of association with people who are not necessarily futurists, but who clearly are seeing around the corner. They may not even know, but like Ev Williams, for instance, yeah. involved with a bunch of stuff where it didn't necessarily begin as something like, well, this will be a billion dollar company, but it was clear he understood something fundamentally about how people interacted that other people did not or thought was a joke.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I guess I guess I, I I'm lucky enough to have really smart friends, and I think uh, maybe I'm bridging the gap between <laughs> an idiot normal person and, you know, these bleeding-edge friends, uh, and I'm smart enough to notice the things that are probably important and I should remember later. Uh, that's
0: right. Well, that's and you distribute them because you've got this that that feeling. Well, and I was wondering yeah. how the, the transition, I mean, you were at Blogger at Pyro Labs uh, for a few years, but uh, then... Well, a year. Oh, it, was, oh, it was a year. Okay. It
1: was, actually, it was 11 months and a few days because I never vested, you know, even oh, a quarter oh. of a person. Oh, in a blogger but uh, i was at amazon yeah, so for I, guess...
0: I was at amazon for seven months so i feel you oh
1: <laughs> yeah so i never answered your first question i was mostly in like the design and ux side of things on blogger so i was like we we set up a small community site and so like metafilter experience came in well there um uh, came in handy but um Later on, I helped set up the Blogspot system, uh, and that was the first time I had to actually do, like, hardcore programming and sort of made the first Blogspot. The first Blogspot box was, like, a $400 uh, PC we bought at Fry's mm-hmm. that we just ran inside the office, uh, figuring we could have thousands of sites on it, you know, running Apache, and that worked out pretty well. But, That's yeah, nice. and then that was – so I did that for a year, and then the .dot .com boom sort of happened, and – yeah, Boom bust oh yeah i forgot
0: so this is two this is like 2000 oh right 2001 2001. like early two
1: i mean i guess my first day at blogger was april 1st 2000 2000, which was sort of the start of the end yes (laughs) so like pyro ran for another year like on fumes uh and yeah i had problems securing any funding and then yeah i just sort of had to walk away the whole sort of original team except for ev and you know Man, everything ever started is is been a joke to people. <laughs> I know. It's well this like is you, my problem you with me- mentioned that a little bit. It's my problem like-
0: with medium is I think medium is like medium is like the best CMS I've ever work yes. with. I have no idea. Even I even did content for it. The magazine was like a contractor, and we did content that was posted. We were sort of experimenting with different stuff, and we did like five months with them on that. And even with that, I, you know, I still look at it and go like, what is Mead? It's a publishing... Pla- what is it? And um, I'll, I'll link to a David Carr uh, New York Times piece that he wrote about it just a few days before we mm-hmm. record this, where he's using the term platisher, a platform oh. published... I know, we in- still <laughs> that term. Uh, but yeah, but that's, a, that's another example that like Ev... Is doing something with medium that we don't all get, that a lot of people don't get, and yet, you know, but and yet, Blogger and Twitter. Like, I'm not going to try to second guess that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, everything he's ever started is people, the first response is joking from like the old, I guess, the established people that. You know, like bloggers, like uh, like software that pre does it for you. Kind of idiot needs that. Yeah. Like, and who wants to hear about your sandwich? And then Twitter, it's like, ugh, like, even worse. Like, <laughs> it's like texting, but public. Like, who cares about your sandwich? And then Medium, like, oh great, a great a place to write it ginormous essays and a beautiful editor who cares <laughs> you know oh but... my god i know
0: i can't figure out what it's gonna that's the thing i can't figure out what it's gonna become and it's 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 the best online writing environment that i think i've ever used oh so, god yes i mean yeah, that's the I thing like, it... i write i write that i've got a blog and my blog sometimes gets lots of views when i write some i wrote a thing about um yahoo's new logo and got you know one hundred and fifty thousand views on it which is rare but i'm like well it's my mm. blog i own it and i'm like i wrote something the other day and i just went to medium because it was so much more natural to go there and write they sucked me in
1: yeah I think I think medium feels very uh, YouTube in 2005 like yes we don't have no idea how people are gonna get paid for their work Mm -hmm. Um, there are are thousands of people doing free work we don't there's no there's no uh, trends here there's no themes like we have no idea what this is gonna be but like in five years it could be some big part of culture and at the core of it is like seriously the best editor in a browser of all time Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of things Ev talked about in the year 2000 that he wished. Like we were trying to get, you know, we were trying to get Word. I mean, it took until 2003, I think, to get this to work. But you could write in in a in the in a Word application on your PC or, or Mac, and then press a button and using you know web services magically post it to Blogger to your blog. And that I mean that took three years to get that right, and like that's what we always wanted was something as close as possible to like a, just a nice writing environment with good features. And the wacky thing about Medium is it's beautiful and easy to use the editor, but it's also like crazy powerful. Like mm-hmm. you can just paste in Markdown and it interprets everything, oh, like, or
0: Vimeo URLs or image. Like yeah. you paste stuff down and it just it converts it and embeds it and lets you. Let's you position it.
1: It does some smart stuff, where, you know, if you double space stuff, it prevents that from happening. And like, it's it's in. I mean, it, there's so much under the surface that it's totally nice, totally insane.
0: Well, let, let's cycle back to these to these early days then, too, because before uh, you joined Blogger, you had started. Meta filter and yeah. um, and it's I uh, think you think about the by well, the past site uh, w- according to Wikipedia, you use Macromedia Cold Fusion and Microsoft <laughs> SQL Server, which are both still active products I mean Cold Fusions had its ups and downs, but i don't know I mean how many sites
1: use it it's still an
0: actively produced and you know
1: updated yeah, piece just, of software. I, I, it's so a metafilter still written in Cold Fusion Is and Microsoft SQL Server. Yeah, we ne- like there was sort of a half-hearted attempt to convert to PHP and MySQL in two thousand four, and then we just never finished it. And it was just a massive project that we just I just kept putting on the back burner and just never got to. The other day I made a Cold Fusion joke on the day of the latest version ah, came out. Yeah. Like two or three weeks ago, apparently they made a new version of it. I had no idea. And I made a great cold fusion joke. So every cold fusion developer in the world was looking at the, the word cold fusion that day. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember Paul who I work with was saying like, Oh, don't, don't make a, you know, cold fusion sucks joke. Cause those guys will come out. Oh, yeah. work. And they did, you know, um, sir, it is actually used on thousands of government and education sites. Like I was like, yes, I use it. Morons. Like I was making a joke about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, yeah. But
0: this is but that's the thing about reliability of tools. I mean, I'm assuming you've I assume you've updated somewhat over the years, but there was yeah. there's an issue where like there's the the parallel development of whether tools improve over time or you reprogram. So you can refactor your code, you can port to another language. I mean, I've seen, you know, there was this discussion, I'm forgetting the site where it was they built everything in ruby and then they ruby on rails and then they realized they made a horrible mistake like they felt like and there's so many i don't want to get into language wars but because there's so many of those but they realized that what they were trying to do did not sort of mentally fit the ruby model and they rebuilt the whole thing in php and they were delighted it required because of how they thought about things and because of their background but you know in your case uh, if the tools improve you 've got a server that 's fifty thousand times faster today yeah. than in one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine and microsoft 's fixed issues and its current version' is better and you, whatever version of cold fusion you 've updated you don 't necessarily have to work on the code if everyone else fixes the you know the performance and other issues for you do you true
1: yeah true uh, and I started so it 's ninety nine I was just doing web design. And I was like the front end guy for the CMS for all the classes and I wanted to learn a little more. I was kind of I felt I felt exactly the way I feel right now about iOS apps and that. I'm like, Oh, I wouldn't someone build this thing that does this? Oh, I wish I knew how and I was in the exact mindset for gosh, I wish I could, you know, write my own software. So like everyone's not quite getting it right. I would really like to see a blog that did this. Yeah. And at the time, like, Fusion was the easiest, total easiest, like, programming language there was because it looked like HTML. So it was just like you write extra HTML, and instead of saying put an image here, it's like, hey, query the database, select star from users and, you know, output here. And the output looked almost like HTML. So I lucked out in that. I sort of uh, convinced my boss at work at ucla that like you know i could chip in with some programming i could maybe make a cms for like a department website they mm. were still they were still like flat files you know like you know every department had a little brochure where site with like about 10 pages and it would be like you know our courses our students our faculty our staff and you know contact us and here's our research projects so they'd all be these six page sites and i was like i can make a cms you know where that's easier maybe we can give each department will log in to update their content themselves. So I like went to this like three-day seminar. Um, and I've been addicted to these things ever since. Like (laughs) I've, I've just figured out like that is the way I learn things. I can't sit there with a tutorial or a book all by myself or, You know, code school doesn't do it for me. Like,
0: Oh, so you go to immersive... You go to, like, three-day, like, weekend...
1: Like a weekend or just a human. A human could stand in front of me and just go through the beginner Hello World tutorial and just force me to do it, like, while they wait to look at me. And I will learn, like, any new language so quick. But if I'm on my own, I just... I never make any headway. so
0: It's funny. I learned from looking at other people's code that I'm forced to modify. So when I took over <laughs> the magazine, Marco Armin is probably, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to say it because I don't know. I think Marco Arman is probably one of the best PHP programmers. I think he sort of hates and loves it, but he built this, you know, he built the framework at Tumblr originally with David Karp and then mm-hmm. spent years working on that. And then um, so I, he had this whole framework that underlied the magazine's uh, content management and publishing back end. And so I knew some PHP. I've been programming in PHP since... The 90s, but hardly. And now I know PhD really well because I had like this ec- expert back end to learn. I'd poke at something, it would break. It's like, that's the wrong thing to do, but I could do it without pain. But it's interesting, there's so many different learning models. It's good that you found your, your method.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if it's visual or audio, but or or social pressure, but someone's standing up and saying, <laughs> "Do the it's tutorial." Stereo. Step one is writing the word "hello." Step two, world. Now you're done. Like, and that's how I learned. So, you know, I came out of like three days of intense workshops, and you know, I was building like I built a library for all the books, and everyone's off. Like, I had about ten coworkers. And we all had bookshelves, and nobody could ever find where the pearl book went. You know, <laughs> so I sort of started with the classic database project of making, you know, a, a catalog, and that worked out pretty well. And then I, and then like MetaFilter was soon after. I started, uh, I started a class. I mean, a, a like a websites for each department CMS, and I also started MetaFilter, and it was. I had a really cool boss that was like, you can do anything you want under your desk. Like, we were sitting on an OC12 line. Oh, my God. We were like, (laughs) like, we had an entire room of Ethernet cables, and we were the, I think, we were really close to the... May West connection was in Santa Monica, I think, and we are... Oh, God, I
0: need to, I'm going to have to annotate and footnote. So OC12, what was... that? Was a, I remember what OC... F- OC3,
1: so it was like four times the size of an OC3, which is like a zillion times more than a T3. Yeah, so you had like hundreds of megabits per
0: second at a time when most yeah. people had like a, a megabit per second at home, maybe, maybe five.
1: Yeah, yeah, like I think my first cable modem in LA in 97 was uh, like 384 kilobit. Or it bursted to one megabyte, one megabit. Let's take a quick
0: break so I can tell
1: you about Harry's.
0: They make razor blades, razor handles, shaving cream. And I've got a coupon code for you at the end of this spot. So, look, the company was started because if you're a fella who wants to shave his beard, you walk into a store and they keep the razor blades locked up typically because they're expensive and you have to get them unlocked and you buy a four pack and it costs a ton of money and it's a completely unsatisfactory experience. So in the nature of disruption that this show is about, Jeff and Andy, the guys who co-founded this company said, look, we can do this better online. We can make it more efficient and we can produce a better product because we can pass on the savings, not having to do the distribution and the marketing, all the rest of it directly to you. Here's the deal. They even bought a 93-year-old German factory that makes the razor blades that they sell because they wanted to control the process end-to-end and keep the cost as low as possible. So what do you get from Harry's? For $15, you get a set that includes a handle, three blades, and shaving cream. It's shipped right to your door. There's an option to have your initials custom engraved onto the razor if you so like. This is a way to get a close shave, not have the hassle and difficulty of finding exactly what you want, and get the best quality. This is kind of the promise of the Internet of the future. And I should point out, one of the founders of this company, Jeff Also co-founded eyewear brand, Warby Parker. So this isn't just get things delivered to your home. This is a way to get savings. You're going to get a high-quality blade that is half the price of other razor blades. But wait, we've got a deal. If you use the coupon code DISRUPT, you get $5 off your first order. So you can try them out for even less now the topography of my face in which beard grows is probably best described as an orange so i always look for the finest ones so that i don't wind up with toilet paper stuck all over my face so use harry's shaving cream use their very fine german engineered blades and save money i'm not sure how you could go wrong with this give them a try harrys.com h-a-r-r-y-s.com Use the promo code DISRUPT and get $5 off your first purchase. Let them know we sent you and get your discount. And now that I've got a smooth finish on my face, let's go back to the podcast. Right, and then may West, I remember the days of may West I started an uh an internet hosting company in ninety four and at one point, even though we were in Seattle, we were thinking about leasing a line from Seattle to May West to deal with the commercial restrictions but fortunately, before that happened, there were commercial interchange um, like regional providers that started up, so we were mm-hmm. able to contract with one that had interchange agreements. but May West was where the commercial internet was allowed to interconnect before the National Science Foundation dropped its uh, right. uh its limitations
1: i guess i'm getting mixed out i think may west is in san jose that might be so, right but, yeah but but there is some like ginormous hub in uh santa monica and we were right on mm-hmm. top of it so we had like enormous bandwidth like if you were gonna da- like in this is a 1999 story but if you're gonna download like the latest netscape i mean it would take four seconds right. you know to download 60 megabytes it was Fantastic. Well,
0: it I always I like these stories though because it's it tells you the scaling. Is, I mean, you know, my first computer had eight k of RAM, that kind of thing, and, and seventy nine. Yeah. And but it it tells you that there's some things that have scaled up massively faster than others. So you know, you still most people can't get more than ten or fifteen megabits per second in their home. Some can get up to a gigabit per second, but we're still limited. So you were sitting on top. Right. I mean, it was an academic thing. A lot of universities now have gigabits or many yeah. gigabits, um, and they're connected. You know, interconnected, but there's some things that don't scale as well. So we're still sort of constrained on bandwidth, even as we have computers that are a bazillion times faster.
1: Yeah, and I would say this is a lesson for anyone listening that, like, when people talk about uh, make your own luck, or I would say use your own luck. Is like I was lucky that I had basically like oodles of free bandwidth. Yeah. With- and I, you know, capitalized on that. Because so using bandwidth, right, it would have cost you thousands and thousands of dollars have. a month back then. For the Well, I mean, it just started small. So yeah. he was like, you could, you know, bring in an old home computer. We'll give you an Ethernet drop. You can do anything you want as long as it's non-commercial. So, mm-hmm. you know, I started at nights. Um, this is a time where, like, my wife was finishing her PhD. And I basically had no life whatsoever. Uh, the first couple years at this job, like, she lived an hour away or two hours away. I only saw her on weekends. So I basically was at work from like 9am to usually two in the morning and I'd go home and sleep and I'd come back. (laughs) Um, so like from 10 PM to two in the morning every day for, you know, six months, I sort of built Metafilter and it was running on an old Celeron 192, like under my desk. That was my old home computer. And I was running, you know, Fusion and SQL server on the same box. I only had 24 megs of RAM, I think. And oh,
0: my God. So I
1: had to, like... But we're talking, like, you know, a 100 visitors a day. It's really no big deal for the first year. Yeah. And then in 2000, I won, like, cool side of the day. <laughs> uh, and, like, 3,000 people showed up the next day. And then, you know, half of them stuck around. And that was basically the watershed event where, like, I hit, I got the critical mass I needed. They stuck around a bunch of smart people you know, stuck around and and you know suddenly every post had one or two comments instead of zero, and it just sort of grew from there.
0: It, it Metafilter has been pretty consistent from the beginning, right? That it's it's a place for a moderated, intelligent discussion, and you've, you sort of build it as a as a weblog, and it has weblog like. Properties, but sort of in the same way that Slashdot was a, was, I mean, Slashdot didn't advertise itself as a weblog, but it was things get posted and then people talk about it and each of the posts is like a, a chronological weblog post, but the whole site, it's not your, you know, your musings, it's community musings and then commentary mm-hmm. on it that's, that's well controlled to provide a, um, a sensible, like civil, engaged environment.
1: Right, yeah, and I try to shoot always for 50-50 I didn't want it to be pure discussion I wanted the post to be really good So you could just read the front page And maybe you don't even have to read the discussions Oh, okay So, I mean, that's why I insist on calling it a blog to this day (laughs) Is that, like, I mean, most of the people I meet Barely ever dive into any of the threads They just sort of oh, what links are cool for things to look at today, and they just read the front page of Metafilter. It, uh, it remains
0: like it's so eclectic. It's like I'm looking at the May 27th uh, listing. It's like Quitting Opium Song and Other Classics, the Dennis Miller Radio, A War to End, what? You know, Scars and Reliquaries from World War II. It skips around, but don't expect Zizek anytime soon. It's this long, oh, my gosh, this theory column, Google's self-driving car, and then this is my favorite. Uh, average person eats three spiders a year. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's like, but these are the things like, it's like the, it's like the sub, the subconscious of the internet where it's like things you're interested in and they bubble up and you don't have to find them because people find these things, collect them. And then the stuff that's interesting
1: bubbles up out of that. Yeah, Definitely. I like
0: that. I mean, fine, you know, that's that's actually the
1: trouble with the internet is it's too interesting right now, right? There's too yeah, many things. I, I just I just totally zoned out because I was looking at the front page. Oh, it's too friend. interesting. It's too interesting. It what? is. Yeah. It's, whatever like, wait, saying.
0: It, it's like the average person actually eats zero person. The median person eats more than three spiders. <laughs> like who's eating the spiders? But all right, so the Browser so you you're, you've been wor- you're working away on this, and you mm-hmm. um and you've gone through some uh, you know you so you're at UCLA you had free bandwidth you go into Blogger. I know you were consulting for some other yeah. Oh,
1: Oh and, and my, yeah, so I go to I go to um Pyro and Blogger and uh uh another stroke of luck is there was a former ISP in the building. Oh my god. So and we're on we're on Townsend Street, which is right up against like where Caltrain stop is at the in the end of Soma. It's where Caltrain ends. Uh and so we're on that street right by the Caltrain station and all those buildings are all filled with, you know, wires and <laughs> macromedia and everybody is on that street. But we had the one cool building that was like T1 and T3 connections in every room because there used to be an ISP in there. So I had free bandwidth again. So all I did was like actually grab, you know, my old home computer from under my desk, drove up to San Francisco, plugged it in. You know, the site was down for six hours while oh I was God. on the 101 freeway. And so I had free bandwidth again for another year or two.
0: The, you know, the, have you ever done the? Uh, you plug it into the UPS. The UPS is charged. You carry the whole thing out into the car and drive it while it's still running.
1: Oh no, I have not. That's, done
0: that. I, I've been involved with that once, and I know there's some there's some larger sites where they have huge UPSs and they've done it to prevent any not downtime, but to not have to power down and like re- worry about restarting it up. So a little crazy, but.
1: <laughs> and if you want to know the the end, the last uh, step in my yeah. lucky free bandwidth story is. So it goes for a while, and Ev keeps the office there for a year or two, and then eventually he has to give up the office. It was right before I guess Google came in to buy it. And so he loses the connection, and I don't have a connection you know, and I'm scrambling, you know, he gives me like maybe two days notice and I was kind of mad, but you know, I'd gotten free bandwidth for like two years. <laughs> exactly right. Um, and, and I had gotten bigger servers and I'd have to like, Hey Ev, can you meet me at the office on Saturday and we can plug it in and, you know, migrate stuff. And like, like Ev was really nice about it. Uh, you know, just sit in a dark room by himself. All the, all these servers are running. Huh. Um, and then, so when I had no bandwidth, uh, like a friend and, uh, a uh, member of MetaFilter was like, "Okay, so this is crazy, but I'm a freelance photographer for Sports Illustrated, and they require that every freelancer has a T1 connection at home. So huh. my, apart- my apartment in New York has this T1 connection that AOL and Sports Illustrated, whatever Time Warner, whoever the heck their parent company I don't remember is anymore, yeah." Yeah, pays for it, and and he was like in college, and then he became a doctor later on. It was just this like once a year he'd go to the Super Bowl and shoot photos, and they just wanted him to be able to you know push him out when he uh, when he got home. So he was like, mail it to me, and I'll put it in the closet with my three other servers. Oh so I got maybe another two and a half years out of that too. Uh, and he moved to Boston, and and Sports Illustrated set him up with a new T1 and. So like my bandwidth for about five years, I think it was paid for by AOL or Time Warner. Uh, but,
0: tra- how was, then- but what was traffic like? Were you able? I mean, T one is only uh, is like one and a half megabits per second, and while it's really solid, you know, it's a nice bidirectional connection. But so, but you were growing during this time too.
1: Yeah, it wasn't too bad because MetaFilter is like pure tech. So in in uh, in actual bandwidth it wasn 't that bad, mm-hmm. and it didn 't saturate his connection, and he was good like i t guy so he could traffic shape all he wanted, so he still had bandwidth. yeah, it was satisfactory. I was amazed that it held up on nine eleven you know post nine eleven a lot of people said they could only get to metafilter, so that 's why there's like five hundred comments on the nine eleven thread because they couldn 't load c n n you know c n n went to text only and they couldn 't load any of the major sites and I was amazed that like you know there was probably 10,000 or 20,000 people hammering Metafilter and it and it it was fine the bandwidth was okay and the server stayed up I was really amazed I never expected that right. well you're you're still
0: like the Craigslist where you didn't you've never really I mean, they added photos too I should say but like you yeah. never you've never really gone into a direction where you said we need to do something you know suddenly need to go graphical and have you know responsive uh, you know resizing yeah. of whatever it's like you know, you focused on the discussion part and the text
1: Yeah, and I guess even today, you know, like with the 80 million people a year hitting it, you know, our bandwidth bills barely top like one terabyte a month in text, Uh, you know, and some of the pages are, you know, a megabyte of text, you know, when there's a thousand comments, Uh, but it's not that much. Like, yeah, I think I'm lucky in that in that way that just being text only. The bandwidth was never really that much of a problem. But I did luck out on, like, whatever, maybe five, six years of free hosting. Yeah,
0: and then by 2005, I mean, I started hosting. uh, I started doing co-location of uh, servers that I ran for different sites in 2000. Gosh, what was it? Around that time, I think, because I was hosting. I was doing the same thing. I had – Seattle was – we had a, a, a competitive DSL providers for a while that were actually really affordable, and they kept the local uh, telco on their toes so I could actually get into my office a reasonably fast, reasonably affordable connection. I was running servers off that for years at a fraction of, of hosting costs, and then I had to bump up to co-location but by then you know gigabytes were not a thousand dollars a piece they were forty dollars a piece or something like the price had dropped so much that i could spend seven hundred dollars a month for like rack space and many gigabytes of bandwidth instead of you know seven thousand and it and it became affordable around probably the same time you had a had hunt for a more permanent home
1: yeah i think 2006 or five or six is when um not colo but uh the leasing a, leasing a box, you know, became a thing.
0: Oh, like dedicated hosting, right, or something? Yeah,
1: dedicated called? hosting, that was the cloud of 2005. Yeah. was that, like, that there is a server somewhere in Texas that you will never see. You never have to visit it at 2 in the morning to replace a hard drive oh, like you would, you know, locally. But you'll never own this box. You'll never see this box. But it's only 100 bucks a month, and here's, like, crazy limits on it that are <laughs> super high. And that was, like, whoa, because I remember, you know, Pyro and blogger servers were at, you know, Exodus, like probably the most expensive host in San Francisco in in the Bay Area, and if a hard drive died, we had to drive to San Jose and use your photo badge to get in and yeah all uh, that yeah I
0: have a lot of handprints recorded for myself of different groups <laughs> I was working with and well I remember too, and you know around a little bit before this time like two thousand and four had a friend who was starting a company and he needed to get uh, he had a, like a pre angel investor who liked what he was doing with early stuff and wrote him a check for twenty five grand so he could buy four servers to buy them wow. and then you know he's still paying the hosting on top of that which was i think became thousands a month yeah. and i think today that would be like $25 equivalent right. a month.
1: Yeah and like we just recently had finally jumped to pure cloud amazon hosting ec2 and our bill went from like we used to have a private rack in Seattle of all these leased boxes that was running around 4000 bucks a month for the last like 5 years. And we just moved to EC2, and it like last month's bill was six hundred and twenty dollars.
0: Hilarious, and and you probably have more
1: power we and have less more concern. Power. Yeah. yeah, and we can make a dupe of any of the boxes in five minutes and run it as a staging environment. Well, like if we, it's so much more flexible and powerful. And not to
0: get too far into the technical weeds, Although I think it's interesting. I, you know, this podcast we cover sort of the entrepreneurial spirit a bit, but it's also I think people like to know the scale of things that they've even gotten into. It is I've I've been using virtual. I switched from using my own. I had my own hardware I owned and co-located co-located. Uh, and then, gosh, I think it's f- three years ago now. I start. I did a piece for Ars Technica, in-depth article about virtual private servers (VPSS) where you don't even own. The, I mean, you know this, but, I'll say, but state is you don't own the box. You're renting a virtualized machine inside some other box and they might move it from that you you know it's it's ethereal like ec2 i mean ec2 is even yeah. one level abstracted because you don't even know where your stuff is about and uh vps's are maybe i mean ec2 is like a vps but anyway so i switched to dedicated vps hosting as opposed to amazon i went to linode and uh and my bill went from i was paying i think a th- uh, I think yearly including hardware updates and not including my time at 2 a.m a. is maybe i was paying fifteen thousand dollars a year, and it went down to 4000 And then the related advantage, which you've seen at EC2, or you will see at EC2 over time as well, is uh, a few weeks ago, I was thinking, gosh, you know, Linode hasn't done an upgrade for a while, and I'm like, oh, I missed this post. They switched all of their hard drives to SSDs. They doubled Mm -hmm. the memory in every instance for the same price. They uh, increased the bandwidth by X amount. They increased their throughput. by, And I was like, I'm not paying more. I was paying $400 a month. Now I am paying $2.50 Two fifty a month, and everything I have is from like two to four times bigger and ten times faster. And <laughs> I did not have to. You know, what it meant was I hit a button, and they migrated my virtual machine to another one, and it rebooted in the space of you know thirty to sixty minutes, and suddenly I have a machine that essentially, in essence, is like I upgraded from a two thousand to five thousand dollar machine for the same price. Actually, and I'm yes. paying less because they upgraded so much. These are the so these are the scale issues that are crazy. I mean, that's where. Since you've been dealing with this for so long, you know. But it's interesting that you've got both constraints. That you have the issue that because you're so heavily text oriented, you don't need this ever growing. Even with bigger traffic, it doesn't scale to like, you know, YouTube video sharing. But but at the same time, your costs uh, keep dropping over time with greater capability.
1: Yeah, and if if I had gone full lamp stack a few years ago. You see things like Digital Ocean coming out, which are just like totally undercutting Amazon and Linotes pricing by like half. Oh, yeah, it's like a- ten
0: dollars a month. You get a yeah. totally fantastic machine you could serve probably, you know, a hundred thousand people a day on.
1: I could probably do MetaFilter on two of their twenty dollars boxes, you know, <laughs> and I, that's why I was like, "Holy cow, this is nuts." The reason I, I mean, get into
0: this is I think this strips off that that barrier to entry, which we, I mean, I know it's been years. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's been years where the prices have become affordable, but when you get down to the point where like I have an idea and I don't know how it'll scale, but for twenty dollars a month, I can play with this for the rest of my life without it even, you know, it, not even noticing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like kids today, as we're two old men talking about. <laughs> The last fifteen years of dumb development yeah. decisions, but like man there 's so many frameworks there 's so many there 's so mu- so much of the stuff is half done for you, and the costs are so low it 's awesome that the barrier is getting w- so much lower every year
0: and well so let, I think this is a good point to transition from the from the uh, the hardware and structural stuff into the content side because um, I, I thought. I think Metafilter, I mean, you guys are just shy of, uh, again, according, if Wikipedia is accurate, July 14th, 1999? Mm -hmm. Yep. And and according to Wikipedia, your first site, your first post involved cats in scanners and the resulting pictures. So you were way ahead of your time.
1: Yeah, I don't know why that was... It was actually something like the 20th post I'd made in the database, but that was the first one that wasn't deleted beforehand. Oh my but yeah, it was just people wedging their cats in their scanners, and then every year <laughs> since then, someone makes that post again, but then last year... It was a uh, cat-scan.com. And like people would make the post in 2003, 2005, 2008. And cat scan long ago became just a, you know, empty domain with, you know, that girl with the backpack looking over her shoulder yes. or whatever. Oh it become like just a, a placeholder page. She's 50 or... now, you know, and uh... yeah. <laughs> the placeholder page was there for a decade. And last year I just on a lark. was like emailed the, you know, contact info on the domain and it was like some guy in China. And I just said, hey, can I buy this? And he was like, um, like $1,000. And I went, that's crazy. You know, I'll give you like 400 bucks, And he's like, okay. And so I bought... I the... have
0: had that discussion so many times. People ask this ridiculous amount. Yeah. I just bought a domain where they were like, $5,000. I said, $300? they are like, sure. <laughs> All right. That yeah, yeah exactly.
1: I, yeah, I felt bad. I should have asked for like 100 or $200. Um, but... Wow, the site is not working right Uh-oh. now. I will I'll figure it out, but before cat dash the cat scan. Yeah, cat dash scan. Yeah, it's not working right now. Jesus, I'll have to look at it. it's basically a Metafilter server now and uh we turned we like turned it into like memories of Metafilter you, last year. You joked so, about Cold Fusion and this is the result. It hurt. I know. I, it's actually probably in the cloud, you know, hosting migration in the last few months. We probably forgot to turn it on. Oh my god. So it's sitting there somewhere, but uh, yeah, we we launched our own little site of memories of MetaFilter. Uh, that last I checked was working, and now now it isn't. But um, that was fun to come full circle, and
0: yeah, and you're almost at 15 years with something that's it feels like it's fundamentally been the same guiding philosophy. I mean, it's you know one thing it's your it's your company. You don't have a, you know 50 people involved in making decisions, but um, but have you had to have you had a you know English the ball over the time? Have you felt like what? your guiding principles were then have, have been able to stay true over that period?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was always just interesting stuff on the web and, and grow the site slowly in new directions as we saw fit. But you know, that made sense. I would say, yeah, it's very true to the, to the original vision of the site um, to just, you know, be an interesting place for interesting things and interesting people to to hang out on.
0: Well, you know, there's been a lot of sites like that and they all uh, that have persisted too. I mean, you've got, um, you know, Laughing Squid, which is Mm -hmm. less community participation, but I mean, Scott Beal has been pushing that out now with a bunch, and he's got a bunch of editors who work on it for many years as, you know, essentially uh, it's it's free advertising for his hosting business, which has done quite (laughs) well, as I understand. It's sort of a byproduct of that. It's not intended to make money. You've got Boing Boing, which has been, you know, this eclectic category of things, but more, maybe writing oriented then but it's Mm -hmm. always had a community aspect and a Mm -hmm. slash dot there's a rise and fall of slash dot there was the rise and fall of dig there's the ongoing rise of reddit but i've always felt metafilter stood as a distinct thing apart from that and is moderation maybe one of the things that makes metafilter stand out in that crowd not not that the Uh, others don't moderate but that the specific focus on moderated discussion
1: Um, I think that's probably what helps with its staying power. Um, I think the things that come and go, you know, people get frustrated or tired with it and, you know, we've probably increased the moderation over time, which does a better job of, you know, keeping the whole thing steady and like the quality level at the same where it's always been. I guess I also was thinking about this the other day. So like I spent the last year sort of like having a few buyout talks with people and then realized how fruitless the whole thing was and maybe it was great that I <laughs> the site is small ish enough to where, you know, it can't scale, it can't grow by ten X, you know, by next year if you gave me five million dollars, it basically would never work. It's sort of this like small but manageable but big but not too big thing that's like nobody is ever gonna buy metafilter. I think I think I might have lucked out and I didn't make a thing that could Become internet scale, and i didn't attract anyone to even ask or care about it, and that you know it can stick around because it's small enough to be run on practically on donations or you know a few people 's time uh, but I think that's that's also another uh, um, thing I never intended, but kind of you know helped with its long term longevity oh right
0: because most of your most of your costs are labor at this point because yeah. the cloud costs are so low and you've reduced those but so it's really people
1: yeah it's just a few people and uh but like you know like yahoo and people from yahoo and google have called me you know before in the last decade until they find out they just go you know everyone here talks about this thing you know i've had people <laughs> on facebook call me and go are you interested in coming to Facebook? Like none of our engineers won't shut up about how great As MetaVilter is or something. <laughs> I'm like, great, yeah, but like there's nothing here. I have no technology. There's no magical Python script. There's no, there's nothing that Facebook could capitalize on except, you know, a human person at the top and a few humans below helping run it like
0: <laughs> yeah and those aren't transferable right like instagram no. had technology or and sometimes i mean even you know even if they buy something and shut it down one of these big companies they buy it because they want some specific ability or whatever and strategically you came up with something that's sustainable and the internet companies today do not want sustainable things they want growth only growth things
1: yeah, they want growth. They don't want they don't want to like take over something like this. They don't want to nurse it along. Yeah, we saw the same so. trend
0: with the, the fact that Andy Beo uh, got offered by Yahoo to buy, upcoming back and um, launched a Kickstarter. It's raised over a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars at this point. It's almost Kickstarter's almost over to rebuild this site that was one of these kind of joyous early internet, you know, early two thousands thing. Yahoo bought and could not figure out what to do with it and broke it and then shut it down. And now because it wasn't a growth thing, I think for them, I think there was a. Certain Certain size audience that he had found, and it would grow slowly, but it wasn't going to be, as you say, it wasn't going to be like a 10x or 100x or a billion dollars. So he gets to make his own new thing that's a sustainable little fun site that'll probably get millions of people like you, but it won't get, um, you know, 100 million or a billion.
1: Yeah, I think they tried to make it to this like giant events site that would serve everybody, and it just did not work. I mean, there was a time, I think the late last year or two of upcoming they piped in everything from Yahoo's events database. So, I mean, you picked any town in America and there were 400 events coming up in the next week. And it was pointless. And none of your, the whole social part of your social friends are supposed to filter what the good things are. Like, I'm going to go to this poetry reading. I'm going to go to this, you know, uh, preview movie screening. Like that was supposed to be surfaced and it wasn't happening because Yahoo was like, let's make this internet scale. Let's just point the fire hose at it. There are thousands of things you could go do, and there were no tools to filter through it.
0: And I should I should note I didn't mention um, before people can look this up too. But you know, the MetaFilter gets a sizable traffic. Like we're not and again, it doesn't have a billion users, but you've got the latest stats I see: seventeen million page views and six and a half million unique users every month. Is that still that's from yeah. earlier in the year? And uh, and like twelve thousand active users, but clearly, um, obviously, millions of people who come because you've got. Discussion that's good to read. I mean, I'm finding myself, luckily, um, you know, directed there all the time, or the Ask MetaFilter site where people can ask or read the answers to questions. And I, I want to talk about a. Rem- There's a couple of things I want to circle back around, but I want to talk about a couple remarkable things that happened recently. One was the um, that shows the power of community and getting a ton of motivated people who are really on top of stuff. Like I never got into Metafilter because I'm too distracted. So Mm -hmm. I never put my eggs in one basket. And I feel like Metafilter doesn't require a commitment per se, but because it's a community, you have to become a participant in it to really earn its benefits and be part of it. And uh, so I dip in, but the, but I can see how powerful it is. And the thing I was thinking of in particular was the, my grandmother wrote this code and I don't know what it is. And how, how many minutes did it take to break for someone like 15 minutes before someone figured it out?
1: oh uh, paul is just saying uh, cat scan might be gone forever oh no <laughs> oh, god. no what
0: happened oh, oh snap you've got backup wait do you lose the domain oh, my registration Wait,
1: hey, there is the dropbox oh those are just mock-ups i'm sorry oh no <laughs> i was just getting alerts that because i just pinged him and said hey Fair. why is Catscan down he's like it's not in dropbox not in github holy crap wait, do I you have pack rat be... enabled in dropbox no i don't think so Oh no if oh, you do it's like... oh we have the files Woo. oh thank god we still have the files. This is breaking they news, just... folks! Is that okay, he'll can... be back this by is... the time this goes live? <laughs> Excellent. So the thing
0: I was asking about is the the, um, the ask uh, ask me The the uh, my grandmother wrote this stuff in code, and I've never been able to figure it out. Oh yeah, w- was that like was it like fifteen minutes or twelve minutes between someone posting yeah. the pictures and an answer and someone saying, "Oh, this is the Lord's Prayer" or something?
1: Yeah, yeah. Someone figured out the first five characters, and then the rest fell pretty quickly. Yeah, we've had some insane. Insane, the right person at the right time. You know, this, there's only whatever 12,000 people uh, come back every day, but like that's a good level. There's a chance someone else, like I, I will, I'll i often see questions for like, I have to get a kidney removed. What is life going to be like after? Oh. And I'm like, what are the chances that somebody and someone's, you know, like 10 minutes later, there's a comment that says, you know, I had my kidney removed six months ago. It's not that bad. Here's the things, the foods to avoid. Like, and I go, really? Like, I didn't think that was a big enough audience to to reach those things. But when you get the right person at the right time, it's really amazing. Yeah. So in 15 minutes, someone figured out a 20-year mystery this just happened with Andy Bayo, in an Upcoming. He was trying to find the original image he used for the background. Yes. And Rob Bichetta from uh, Boing Boing figured it out in 15 minutes, and it was the back of an album cover, which is like almost impossible to search for online because <laughs> they only show <laughs> it was actual a, covers. It
0: was a sliver, too. It wasn't even the whole yeah, thing, right? It was, it was a, like a slice yeah. of and an album And he's like, cover. I think
1: it's a Zappa cover, but when you go look up <sighs> albums, you see the front of the albums. You never see the back, and Rob knew what it was so and me, found it. Ask
0: Me If I is like the API to people's pattern recognition capabilities yeah and
1: the, our other famous like amazing story that was 20 minutes or less or <laughs> <where> the <laughs> pizza was free was um i don't know if you saw the uh, psych i mean the chances are so nuts that um this this kid asks, like i'm gonna go with my um parents to visit austria and my grandparents fled the nazis and uh, all we have are some all we have is an address of where he once lived oh my god um, like we want to go visit it this building but like how do we find out more about it and stuff and uh and like oh would they ask for oh they want to know where he lived that's right they knew yeah. he lived in Austria in 1939 and so they're like is there a such thing as like a phone book for 19 th- is there even a thing people had back then yeah and like 20 minutes later someone from the Holocaust museum in Washington DC it was a member a, a prominent member just went yeah, we totally have like archives with thousands of phone books for specifically this reason, so you can look Because there was no privacy back then. So if you want if you have his first name and last name, we can find it in there in the equivalent of the white pages of nineteen thirty nine for Austria, which we you know, the capital city that we have. And like in twenty minutes it was great. They found out, they gave him the exact address. They found his name. They actually went in their archives by name and they said they found a whole bunch of letters that he had sent um, he was like he was the first one to flee to America, and then he yeah. sent a whole bunch of letters back to Austria. And I think the post office held it or something; and never got to the family. So they they got to give the family like a pile of of letters that their grandfather had written to the family, and they said like this was going to be destroyed in two months. Like we had held it for fifty oh my years. God. Like we were going to get rid of. Like it was slated for destruction at the end of the year. And you're like so great, you contacted us. Uh, and then he posted like a couple months later. He posted a picture in front of the building where his, his uh, grandfather lived. Like and it was amazing. Like who has? But, and you might, yeah, but you might totally expect it. Like
0: from from Twitter, there's a hundred million people, a hundred million accounts. <laughs> there's five people use Twitter actually, and I and I'm one of them. And you and the other. So there's you know there are some. Uh, plausible. Many millions of people use Twitter every day, and everyone on Twitter is probably you know five away. And then you get the things where someone tweets uh, Ashton Kutcher and says, "This is this thing you are know, missing, our Child." Or you know, these, these uh-huh. I, actually, I've seen a number of those lately, which has been wonderful. Where someone said, our, "My daughter's missing," and yeah, then and like a few hours later, stuff. like we found her, or a few days, someone's like, "We found her," and thank you, yeah. she's back home and she's safe. And you're like. You know, was it Twitter? I don't know. But maybe – and I've seen cats returned and whatever. But, like, that's millions of people. But mm-hmm. you have the right 12,000 people coming every right. day is what it seems like if you have that degree of – you know, what's funny is I remember when Google launched Google Answers just long dead uh, in mm. the early 2000s. I wanted to find out – there's this quote from, uh, from Albert Einstein I wanted to use in a news article where he said it was about uh, – it's about wireless, and, and some uh, wireless groups were using a, a it, like a Wi-Fi community groups, and it was something about uh, a reporter asked Einstein, how does wireless telegraphy work? And he said, oh, it's imagine this. There's a cat whose head is in New York and the tail is in Los Angeles, and when you pull the <laughs> tail in Los Angeles, the head in New York squawks, except <sighs> there is no cat. And, I, this is, and there was a group, group that called itself NoCat as a result. Oh, right. And yeah. so I go to Google Answers. You'll like this story, I think, because it involves Jessamyn West.
1: <laughs> ah. And I forget if it
0: was her or she told me to go there because she was an early active uh, mm-hmm. uh, Google Answer participant because they were paying people giving answers. And she's a librarian, researcher, and so forth. And someone got in touch with the Albert Einstein Institute in Jerusalem on my behalf who said, we can't find any instance of him saying it. It sounds like the kind of thing he said, but we can't verify it. It's like, okay. He did ah. say things like that. but And I mentioned Jessamyn West. She was one of your moderators. And this this can get us into um, – there's one sidebar I want to take before we do this, which is uh, we'll talk about what's been going on recently. But uh, the one sidebar is the PVR blog, the personal video recorder blog that you ran for about five years. It's – I know it was separate from Metafelter. It's a side interest of yours. Mm-hmm. But it seemed to me it recapitulated or it told the story, I should say, of – A lot of the rise and falls of a lot of things during that period and the perils of Google advertising and and everything. Why did you uh, – was it a blog post? Something provoked you to start a separate site in 2004. Did you get a lot of response to an initial post about it? I've forgotten Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, yeah, so it was 2003. I'd done a couple posts on my blog in 2001 and two about TiVo, and uh, there was this wacky TiVo explosion in, like, 2000, spring of 2000 or 2001. Like, TiVo gave had a giveaway contest, right? And I think Kotki was the first one to discover it. And if you wrote an essay, they were supposed to give away, like, one TiVo a day for, like, for six months. And it turns out, well, like... Jason did it, he won it, and he made a post about it, and then everyone who knew Jason tried it, mm-hmm. and like 90% of us got a free TiVo out of it Oh my like, gosh! what I actually think is they had a new version coming out, they had warehouses filled with the old, slower <laughs> OS and, and smaller hard drives and they just said, like, I was supposed to have won a, you know, 40 gig hard drive one that could only record 20 hours and I got something double the size yeah. you know, like, they must have ran out and they gave newer ones, but It was the best thing in the world, the most connected internet people in the world. Like, I know 30 people that got a free TiVo that year. And then, so a year or two goes by, and like, I was the one who spent weekends tinkering with it, and I was the guy who figured out, like, oh, you can triple the hard drive. You know, back then, hard drives would double every year and be half the price. So, you know, you could wedge, you know, a 200 gig hard drive in it mm-hmm. and then a 500 gig hard drive in it and you have to run these linux commands it takes an afternoon basically and so i'd write it up for friends and friends were kind of looking to me a lot like these these 30 friends that had tivos you know were constantly asking me stuff and i i realized you know oh i probably have enough you know knowledge here to like make a sublog so i launched it the same day i think that adsense launched so i think it was like june of 2003 or july of 2003 and it was like, literally, I made I made one post a day that was like, you know, I just look at it in gadget or something and see what was that the one interesting tidbit that had come out recently. And on weekends, I would like spend three or four hours doing something like reviewing a device or upgrading my TiVo or something. And so it was totally a hobby site. But I was amazed on the first day it launched, it was, you know, I had like five posts, maybe that I'd writ, wrote a week earlier. Like, I made $100 on the first day, and that, like, completely blew me away. Like, that was something I'd never seen before in my life. Mm -hmm. So, like, $100, you know, it was at TypePad, and it cost me 8 bucks a month or something. And I was like, I just made, like, a year of hosting. Like, (laughs) in one day, like, that was my high bar. Like, oh, my God. I mean, I was coming from the academic world. You know, I was at Pyro for a short time, but then I was at Creative Commons. who was a non-profit. Like, you know, I'm not around money. I've never been around money my entire life. So making $100 one day was, like, the most amazing thing that had ever happened to me. Um, so, you know, I just kept doing it. Uh, you know, it's been weekends, writing longer posts, and, you know, just do short news posts day by day. And, you know, I made a few hundred bucks a month, and eventually, after maybe a year, I was making about 1000 bucks a month. It was doing better than Metafilter. I mean, at that time, I think Metafilter was making like 300 bucks a month on like the very earliest AdSense. Mm-hmm. Um, so and so remember right,
0: Google launched AdSense in like late 2003, I want to say, because I think I yeah. was one of the, I signed up for it with a Wi-Fi blog very
1: early on uh, as well. Yeah. I think it's right around June or July of 2003 when I launched PVR blog. Mm-hmm. Like it, it launched the day before or the day of, like I was going to launch PVR blog and then it was like, Oh, Hey, AdSense is going public. Cool. Like I had been using a, a pre-beta of AdSense on MetaFilter because Jason Schellen was working there and at Google and got me into that thing. But so yeah, PVR blog goes for a while. It's making a thousand or two a month, um, which is really nice because it's totally a hobby thing. I'm spending like twenty minutes a day on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did sort of have to like follow tons of gadget news to figure out what the one cool piece of gadget news is. And so it was a little bit of work, but uh, you know it was as a nice side business. And like Google called me soon after, maybe about six months after, it, and was like, "Do you want to be the case a case study on our site?" So I mean, I used to be, I used to be like in their case studies. It was PBR Blog, and I think Seat Guru, the thing you look up airplane seats with, and there's one other like travel site or something that was an early pioneer of AdSense. Um, oh, and this is important. Mm-hmm. So like after a few months of it. Uh, I in my stupid academic no cash mind I go I should tell everyone about this. This is the most amazing thing ever. So I wrote an essay on like how amazing AdSense is, how it's so great for writers and people who have passions about things, and that everyone should go, you know, make their passion blog and slap a little AdSense on it, and maybe you'll make a few hundred bucks. And that's what my hope was to enable writers yeah. to get paid, but really it sort of launched the entire like. Gross, you know. SEO, you know. Does they call it design for AdSense DFA? Is what oh, it's called gosh. internally. Like just like there was shovelware junk sites of just grabbing RSS from blogs and slapping ads on them, and people tried all kinds of crazy ass experiments just to. I mean, I mean, I. It was sort of like commercial blogging launched, but also the scummy parts of spam blogs launched because of it. Well,
0: people figured out what the most, the highest valued keywords were too. They, right. And so there's all the, was it mesotheli- mesothelioma? The, <laughs> yeah, uh, that uh, weird
1: lung cancer yeah asbestos. Can asbestos. Yeah. yeah,
0: so people would create blogs that essentially mentioned the word. And because they were, it was like $60 a click because all the lawyers had jumped on the settlement money that was coming out. And uh, you saw it all over the place. You're like, why is everyone talking about mesothelioma? I, that's a very yeah. oh, because they're making you know a thousand dollars a day from people clicking on those ads.
1: And one I told a friend I told a friend that I used to use Google News alerts to just search for the word TiVo and I would just read like the five news items every day and I'd make a blog post about the one interesting thing yeah. that TiVo's gonna do. And then Google would pay me for you know, through AdSense for that, you know, for <laughs> and someone was like, Why don't you just have the snake eat itself? Right and like automate it. So <laughs> So a friend a friend did this as an experiment. He took like he did a Google alert for like mesolothemia and posted everything that hit on it to a fake blog covered in AdSense. In 3 days he made $17,000 and then Google shut it down. <laughs> and it was just like, "Whoa, that was like it was all done as a joke and it just went it just went sideways." It's it, but and you it's... And then, like an entire industry was born, it's and I feel bad about it's. Like, your, it's all your fault, Matt. But well, it, yeah. if I didn't say anything, like I was, I looked back at the stats at one time, and like this PBR blog was making ten or fifteen dollars CPM. Mm-hmm. It got a few, a few thousand visitors every day, and it was making you know a few, couple thousand a month. And like after, after I wrote that post, there were four TiVo blogs, like within a month, that were essentially copies of my blog. And then suddenly, like, traffic started to go down, and, and the ads definitely, like, it went from $10 to $2 uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and I was like, man, if I was a smarter businessman, I would have shut up. <laughs> I would have never told anyone how great this was. I would have retired on these sacks of money. But, yeah. No, I'm glad it – I'm glad Other people would have the cracked around.
0: the code, I'm afraid. And, you know, during the, uh, the yeah. same
1: arc as I ran this Wi-Fi blog
0: from 2001 to 2011, and, it, you know, still actually uh, – has a reasonable amount of traffic. And I get a few dollars, I I get sometimes hundreds of dollars a month still from Google AdSense. Uh, Not every month, but it's sort of hilarious. Uh, But the first month, so I was running this thing out of love and occasionally got sponsors. You know, some Wi-Fi company would pay me uh, $500 to sponsor the mailing list or put a you know. So I was making a little bit here and there. My primary career was writing and programming. And uh, Google AdSense comes out. I'm like, well, I should try this. I sign up, I get read (laughs) it in. It's like August 2013. The first month I made... $3,500 $3,500 or something from it. Wow. And I thought, holy crud. And that was the best month ever because I'm like, well, if this continues at this rate and I could have, this could be my whole job. And then, you know, and within a year it was making, I don't know, $1,500 a month from it. And and at the peak of the traffic I had four years later in 2007, people had already experienced such, um, there was dilution because so many people, as, as you're describing, set up sites that tracked and sort of filtered down the most valuable Google AdSense of words. <laughs> some of them were real editorial sites. There were sites that launched and, and grew entirely because of it, and they were doing real editorial, and some were scummy, and some were server farms uh, or uh, content yeah. farms. But uh, so by the time I hit the arc, I think I had the same thing as about 2009, I think is when you sold the, the blog, and mm-hmm. by then I was seeing relatively low Google AdSense. I'd worked with Federated Media to do display advertising, and that had um, replaced and, and complemented it, but you had this, um, so when, at the end of that arc, you have a blog that's still producing revenue, but you'd seen CPMs go down and overall money down. You, you felt like you'd sort of run the course in 2009, you're ready well. to move on?
1: Well, I was just sort of bored with the subject matter, so I mean really it's a my if I tracked p b r blogs income it's a it was a nice bell curve, so it it built from a few hundred dollars a month to a couple thousand a month. And it, at its peak, it was mostly federated media selling big display ads that were super expensive. And, you know, I was making four grand a month at one time on that site. And that was probably 2006 or seven. Mm-hmm. And I was still only making maybe one post today and, you know, one a week. That was a lengthy post. And then after that, I mean, it was just like growing up, having a kid, you know, no longer being, I mean, TiVo was releasing less products less often, so it just wasn't. It was an
0: oxygen thing, right? My Wi-Fi site started to fade when actually you could buy things with Wi-Fi everywhere. Wi-Fi everywhere. Yeah, well, it was everywhere, <gasps> and it started because people had no idea what was going on. The hardware, software, hotspots, infrastructure didn't work. By 2000, And say, like 2009, I kept it running for a couple of years after that, but community mm-hmm. Wi-Fi had sort of settled in. Uh, municipal Wi-Fi had essentially died. And you, yeah. everything you bought had Wi-Fi in it, and it worked without drivers and configuration. So by the yeah. same token, by 2009 for, for PVRs, I think – Every
1: cable company had yeah, one, you, just, you, you know, know a, a, a like, bad clone of T
0: V. Yeah, and it was like, you know, it's $100 bucks or less or free, or they throw it in, and then it's like what – you know, so you didn't need – you didn't need to explain it anymore. People weren't confused, right. and it wasn't like a $500 item they are trying to sort out. It's like it's $5 on their bill.
1: Right, and I could have been like, uh, you know, migrate into mobile video and there's all, you know, watching, you know, covering Netflix streaming, covering iPad video apps. Like, that That would be the obvious place to go. I was just tired of writing about gadgets, you know. Mm-hmm. I was also getting older and tired of, you know, I think everyone who's ever done gadget reviews kind of stuff, like, uh, the 14-year-old boy inside of you is so stoked at the idea of ever having a job reviewing gadgets. And then, like, you fast forward to six months or two years later and you have a pile of unopened boxes in your office of all the <laughs> latest, greatest stuff. And you look at it with dread instead of wonder. <laughs> oh, my so God. So I think I got to that point where, like, everyone's sending me everything, you know, sling boxes and, like, portable hard drives that can do video. Like, Like, all these companies are sending me stuff. And I just, like, I was just sick of it. Like, it wasn't fun anymore. And so, walking away from that, you know, I probably walked... I sold it on eBay. It was still making, like, a 1000 a month with, like, one post a week. Uh, and then I bought it back from them a couple of years ago. Oh, is that right? So, you own it again? Yeah, but... they never... They made one post, and then they never... They were going to hire content writers, and they were going to keep it going. And then they were, like, some sort of SEO and email company, and they were busy on a thousand other projects. So, they never did anything with it. So, I... Asked them if they'd sell it for a fraction of the price they sold to me, and they said, "Sure." That's hilarious. What the hell? Because, but you and you sold it. So I've made I've made one post a month since then, or something. And You auctioned it for what? You had about twelve thousand dollars on eBay. on yeah. eBay. I remember eBay. That's... Yeah, I just wanted I wanted to do it public, like the classic uh, academic mindset. I prefer to do everything in public, and because I had a lot of people email from like small tech sites, you know, not like in gadget size, but something below that going. We would love to do this deal privately with you. We don't want this to be public. How much we paid, and I was like, "Well, I kind of want to see it public. Mm-hmm. I want to see what a domain costs these days." Um, so it was fun, and I, I guessed it might have made ten grand, so it was pretty close to that.
0: That's great. Right. Um, the yearly the yearly earnings, and then their expectation they can increase it, and yeah. Um, well, this, this cycles us back around to sort of uh, you know the, some of the impetus for getting you on the show about what's about you're living in the open, being transparent, and um, what's going on with Metafilter, Google traffic, and Google advertising. And and I can link to, you've written extensively about this, and I can link to that. You don't have to recapitulate everything because you go into some depth, but this is that petard we all get hoisted by is uh, Metafilter thrives on Google, people finding you through Google as well as your regular readers, but people find you through Google, and it thrives on Google ads that help fund the cost of paying moderators and your and your bills what what happened uh starting a a, a, sounds like a couple years ago that's affected your ability to um remain viable in the way you were
1: yeah i mean i so like MetaFilter never set out to be like commercial venture and it was nice it was a dream someday that i would work on it you know full time and it took till late 2005 is when i finally quit my day job and did it full time, and it made a little bit of money. And then 2006, I hired Jessamine. Um, was the first hire, and then 2007, one other moderator and Paul, the programmer from Pyra, friend Paul Bausch. And so we had this small crew, like four people, for years and years. And the Google ad revenue was just sort of there. And at the at the beginning, it wasn't that great. And uh, I used Federated Media used to make me a lot more money. Um, I used to have about three or four sources of income. And then eventually, like, Ask Metafilter just started getting indexed better and better. Anytime Matt Cuts would tweet, like, Oh, hey, we just, you know, updated, you know, our search engine. There's going to be less junk results. Things should get better. Like, we'd see a 5 or 10% jump in traffic. And it went like that for eight years. Um, just every three or four months, it would bump up a little more, bump up a little more. And then the revenue would bump up a little more. And, like, by 2011, it was, like it was like a stressful amount of money like it was like a small let I me mean like a small startup amount of money yeah. like i was it was stressing me out like i tried to find a psychologist cuz i was having trouble sleeping going like i just felt like i had magic beans i never had money in my entire life ever since i was a kid My parents were not that well off and, you know, they were stupid with their money and I didn't want that to happen to me. And I just feared like, these are magic beans. I'm going to trade for a cow for no reason. Like I'm, I'm going to do something wrong here. So I eventually found like financial guys to help me out, like financial planner type people to help me act like an adult more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I bought a lot of bikes for fun. Um, probably too many, but So, yeah, it just kept growing and growing and growing. Then, yeah, in November 2012, I just woke up one day and, like, the revenue and traffic were way down. And at first, I thought it was no big deal because Google used to do, um, like, maintenance on their systems and servers on Saturdays every three or four months. And so I was like, this is a Saturday. So it looks like there's half the traffic. But, you know, I'll wait till Monday. They'll usually restore the data by Monday. Uh, You know, it's – they always – like, the services are always down for part of Saturday and then like by sunday i'm like wait this looks real like sunday's stuff is down this can't be right and i checked we used Chartbeat as well as google analytics and both of them are lining up the exact same numbers i went oh Oh, snap and i read around all the recent updates and it was a lot of like don't have too many ads don't have more than one ad above the fold and i think we had two or three depending on how you looked at it and uh they were like, you know, they didn't want content farms. They were always downplaying user-generated content. But, you know, we had all this great moderation, and it was like the highest quality user-generated content possible. So, I, you know, we'd never gotten snagged in that.
0: And this is part of the rise of the content farm. Demand Media and a bunch of other companies yeah. were, were churning out there, paying people pennies, essentially, yeah. to create, you know... Here's seven steps to, you know, load a web page and like any topic, th- as many articles as they could that sort of, that uh, they were doing search engine optimization. So the results would get up there, but the work was extremely low quality, but it would show up at the top. It was poisoning Google it because was, low quality yeah, results was, showed up at the top.
1: It was super frustrating to use Google like in 2011 or so because you'd search for basic, you know, airline websites and how to book an airline ticket like, it was one, like go to the you know, site to book
0: the ticket and you're like no nah, right. it's not and helpful so,
1: so you're kind of like looking at all your search results like okay remember if you see ehow.com to just ignore it and go down to the next one i like the day matt cuts announced like hey we totally kneecapped uh, demand media like metafilter's traffic went up by 10 percent. like the day he said we took demand media out of the search index you know like metafilter did way better after that Mm -hmm. and so uh the part of the story i haven't told in that medium piece just because it was just getting already too long complicated was that like google's adsense team had reached out to me you know in the early days and made me a case study and like ever since about 2006 or 7 like uh when you're a big publisher you get an ad rep from google calling you randomly like You'll just get a call on your cell phone and it says Google Inc. And you're like, oh, <laughs> no, what did I do? The <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> answer the phone, and it's like this perky like 24-year-old person right out of college going, hey, I'm Dinesh, and I'm your like new Google AdSense rep. Uh, I'm your account rep. Uh, we should talk. Let's talk about how to optimize. And basically, the phone calls would be pretty short, about five minutes. And it was always like... You can add a lot more ads. You know, the rules are state, you know, you can do this many ads, but you could do a lot more oh, than that. Like geez, yeah. we noticed you only have one or two ads on a page. You could be making a lot more money. And I would say, you know what? I don't want to piss off users. Like I think I'm good and I would hang up and three months later I'd get a new AdSense ad rep with a new name calling and we'd have the exact same conversation. And this happened from 2007 on. And I was always, almost always refusing everything they said. Yeah. And then in like late 2011, a guy called and I gave him this spiel, and he was like, "Oh, I totally dig." It he was the first one who listened. He was a nice guy, and he said, "Yeah, I totally like you're trying to weigh you know user experience needs. I totally get that. Like, I'll I'll keep digging, figure out if I can find something that works better for you." I'm like, "Great, no promises, whatever." And then he came back and he put me in. He said, "You know, you can be in this." high-traffic publisher beta where you get full control over CSS and JavaScript and it's not served in an iframe. And this is what the New York Times and the LA Times use. And, you know, you can make your ads look like anything you want. But once you do that, like, we have to approve what they look like because, you know, we have... There's no standardization here. So, and he started off with, like, you know what? We'll... Our team will send you mock-ups of Metafilter and you just need to approve them. Uh, so it was like... You know, they'd send me back a a mock-up with a zillion ads on it, and I'd say, no, I don't want that one or that one. And we'd cut it down, and then eventually I'd be like, yeah, okay. So I sort of agreed to, like, you know, maybe one or two more ads than than it had been there in the past, and that's when money, when you look at the Medium post and the graph of money, that's the, like, giant peak. Is the time I said yes to, you know, Google AdSense employees. And the money did, like, you know, almost double overnight, and it was psycho high, and so when it came back around to getting delisted or going down and being told is probably ads, you know, too many ads or something, I was like, damn, because it's like <laughs> Google employees told me to do one thing. And then Google employees told me that was wrong. Right.
0: And they're highly siloed there. So the divisions don't yeah. talk to each as much as they pretend they not never to be, they talk don't talk to each other. And yeah,
1: when I went back to the AdSense people, they were like, wow, you know, Matt cuts. <laughs> that was their first response <laughs> that like, that guy never talks to us. That guy will never, ever speak to us. You know, we've asked him to come talk to him. Like, you know, because they were giving out advice that wasn't that great for the search side of things. You know, their advice is basically to plaster everything with ads and more ads because, you know, their bosses are telling them to make as much money for Google Ad, the ad business as possible. Um,
0: yeah, there, there's some there's some suspicion and there's been some reports recently by including by somebody who claims to have been an you know, ex-Google person that Google has really stringent policies, about who they knock out of Google AdSense as well for, um, you know, ostensibly, uh, you know, click fraud. And because mm. uh, Google will collect the money from the publisher and they will not pay it out depending on the circumstance. Oh. If it's actually fraud, they refund it to the publisher, but there have been some lawsuits about that as well. And if it's huh. – if it is – if it's um, – if it is fraud, they will pay refund the money. If it's not fraud, then they keep the money, but they'll knock people out who have maybe legitimate uh, websites. And it's a value to Google to knock people out who have produced a lot of Google AdSense revenue. But... They're not keeping it. They'd rather serve the ads elsewhere and keep it. Anyway, it's, there's a lot of dispute about how that part works, too. I know uh, I got knocked out briefly once with a site I run. They said, uh, you've had uh, you know ridiculous amount of activity uh, on this one thing, and, and you've been suspended. And I went through the appeal, and they're like, sorry, no appeal. And I bitched about it on twitter and like you're reinstated uh but the reason was some i looked through it i looked through my logs looked at what was going on is it was nothing to do with me there was no way they tracked it back to me is somebody had set up a bot to clicks you know to follow some url you know a bazillion times and it wasn't even clicking through my site it just happened to use a referral url and you're like i uh-huh. it's, i'm not in charge of that and but the, yeah. you know it was a lot of money and they uh it, it's a tricky situation and the process is extremely opaque and there's no way to call anybody at google as you know and uh right. so you wind up uh, at, you know, the short end of the stick without control.
1: Yeah. So immediately in the aftermath of that, you know, I was like, okay, we reduced ads to the least amount possible, uh, and revenue tanked. And we had some, I had some savings. So we were running off that for a while. And then by the time spring came along, I was like, well, it didn't improve, but like, you know, there's still a lot of fat here we can cut. And, you know, I'd cut out, you know, we started looking at cheaper hosting. Uh, you know, I, I used to sponsor like some radio podcasts and radio shows, and I I ended that. I used to sponsor some bike teams. I ended that, and I took uh you know everyone sort of took big pay cuts and like and then like a year had gone by, and I was like oh, that's really surprising. It hasn't gotten back, but you know we're running lean and meaner, and everything's working fine, so we just keep going, but. You know, every two, three months, they would still, you know, update the big index of Google. Uh, And instead of the last eight years of, like, every time they do that, we get 5% better, we are starting to get 5% worse. Oh, man. Okay. So, it it was starting to be, like, so, you know, after a year, you know, we're doing better, we're doing fine, we're breaking even. And then, you know, the next month, it's 5% less. Okay, that's fine. We'll just uh, we'll cut back on this one thing. One part-timers' hours can be cut, you know and then you know when it reached like a year and a half of it we it was kind of death by a thousand cuts at that point and like april 1st i mean i had been talking this with staff since january big time like you know we like i have enough money in the bank for like three more months if things go south on us like we're just barely breaking even right now um and i never knew when to go to the community to tell them because i didn't want to do it i knew the natural would be kickstarter or a fundraiser and i you know, I wasn't comfortable with that. When I ran the numbers, I just assumed most people say 5% of your audience will pay a small amount and support you. And if your audience isn't big enough, the 5% is not going to cover the bills. Or
0: or it's a one-time fix and you really need a long-term, sustainable fix because all you're going to do is bleed that money out and you'll be back where you're at without feeling like you've fulfilled the reason you switched.
1: Right. Yeah. And I thought, Oh, I mean, I know I've never really asked the community for, for money, and I would get a good response. Like, but if I raised like a hundred thousand on Kickstarter, that's why I figured I would lose this year that like, you know, everyone would gladly pay it. And I think we'd hit it. And then January of next year, I'd have to do it all over again. And that would, you know, good luck. Like there's no way that would happen. So when I ran the numbers of like people would monthly give us a couple bucks, I thought, you know, we can maybe raise a couple grand a month uh, that way. And you know, we were looking at like almost $10,000 deficits. Uh, so I was like, this is never going to work, you know? So I got to the, you know, last point possible. And then April 1st, we saw like another 10% reduction. And I was just like, Oh man, there's no way like we're not going to make it through the summer at this point. Um, so that was when I was sort of like, I think we have to let people go and cut down our costs more. Like, there's no, there's no more places to cut.
0: Right, and you'd already done – we talked about the hosting thing. So you'd already found a way to – you know, you went yeah. to the cloud, you reduced bills. And th- this is uh, – the thing – I hear this story a lot. It's not – I don't want to say it's Google doing anything specifically bad. Like they're not designing this to penalize any of us, but that there's um, you know, a bunch of trends, one of which – and I, we, I think you may have talked about this. One of your posts is that um, Facebook has bled away a lot of the kind of routine traffic that you would see. So a few years ago, I could launch a thing or write an article. So there are articles that I would write, and I'd be like, you know, this is going to get – Ten to 50,000 page views because it's in this topic area. Or you look at, you know, I get something linked on Boing Boing and it's going to explode. I know that. Now, mm. uh, you know, certainly in the last year, and this was part of my experiment with Medium where I was testing to see where people came from and went to. And uh, if you get an article on Facebook that's the right kind and people can't just read the summary, but they see it and it intrigues them enough to click through, then you get massive traffic. But I see things as little as, I want to say, 5 to 10% of what I would expect three years ago is now the traffic I see on articles or even launching new ventures, it just if it's not fully integrated in a way that Facebook rewards and maybe Twitter and maybe Pinterest and maybe some of these other sites, then (laughs) it's almost impossible to get that traction we used to be able to get.
1: Right. Yeah. And um yeah, and I mean part of it, yeah, is Metafilter. Like the world is passing Metafilter by and I'm okay with that. And you know, maybe like eventually, you know, Metafilter you know 10 years from now might just be my side project again and i have a day job again or something and like that might be the long term trend but like yeah it was it was kind of unfortunate that like the slow build of google's revenue helped me out considerably and i had been fretting about it since like 2010 when it started to surpass like 75% of my income is coming from one source yeah. and then it was 80%, then it was 90%, then it was 95% at its peak. And you have all these people with apps who they're – you know, and I'll tell you like the magazine
0: for me, the magazine is a good chunk of my – revenue, uh, and I'm dependent entirely on the, I shouldn't say entirely, I sell subscriptions separately to the magazine, but I, you know, I did the book Kickstarter and so forth, but the App Store, we all live and die by the App Store. Apple says, oh, it doesn't meet the guidelines, we're kicking it out, or um, we're making a change to newsstand, as happened with the magazine, so everything is less easy to use or find, and these things are so outside our control, but we live and die uh, by them because that's where the audience
1: found us or lives. Yeah, and you know, and I had started 2 years before looking for alternatives to AdSense and like as I mean, I've looked at every little ad out, outfit and the only way I could have made more money is if I like hired advertising staff myself to to I guess sell direct ads, which, you know, I have no expertise in even knowing how to hire someone to do that or or if that would even be a thing that could raise more money, but that was basically the path I saw everyone else do like you know you see Nick Denton has ad people and Jake uh, Dobkin who does Gothamist you know he had he had a room of thirty writers he had a room of thirty ad people like that's how we he... the
0: all expanded that way too is the all has a yeah. bunch of sites and they have ad sales people and it's uh, but they have I mean the product they're delivering is so different than your community your community isn't as much yeah. of a saleable commodity you're you're floating on a floating on the ocean of the like pooled interest that's been guided to you, as opposed to like, okay, oh, hey, we're driving this. We need to get a thousand posts up this month,
1: right? And I think those guys, um, they all, the all and the Gothamists, Gawker, at least they can say this is a site about New York. You know, we can go after advertisers in New York to sell to New Yorkers reading about New York, and that's easy to sell ads for. And metafilters about anything on Earth for anybody in the world to read for any reason. So it's really hard. So. So, yeah, I looked for alternatives to AdSense leading up to this problem because I was getting nervous about it. Uh, uh, And there, like, you know, uh, Google bought a lot of its competitors and there wasn't – there's not – I mean, people can't offer anywhere close to what AdSense can do. So, you know, when the cuts happened, I was bummed and, you know – you know we're doing okay now uh we're about break even and then so what i really want to announce to the community like a week ago a little over a week ago was that like look we have to do this i'm really sorry this is the world we live in now you know we're gonna have less staff on metafilter uh and you know i really wanted the message to be like be prepared like you mm-hmm. know it might take an hour to answer your contact form email instead of 30 seconds like we are Really nuts about, you know, like sub two minute response times on emails. And we watch the site really closely, you know, all the way down to like, we have a whole flagging system and we watch it down to the single flags that come in, you know, our early, early signals to something that's bad or problematic on the site. we jump on those. Um, So, you know, my plan was June 1st to, you know, have half as much moderation staff and we were going to beef up our tool set in the back end. You know, we've built a zillion little tools, but we could build a zillion more. And in the future, you know, we're going to try and make the site a bit more self-serve, a bit more, you know, make the whole flagging system lower friction so we can get more votes to it. And then we'd work on our back end tools to like alert the, you know, fewer mods working longer hours that you know we could you could be paying attention to something else and just get a little alert that three people thought this one thing was problematic you should probably jump on it right away well,
0: and it seems, you know, you've got a self-regulating audience, too, as I know people always try to come in and spam and do things. People always have intemperate yeah. things. But I feel like people pick up a tone. I mean, ex- except from spammers, and they sort of know. They try stuff, and if it doesn't work, they don't launch the automated weapons. People will see these weird comments show up in, you know, their blogs, and it'll be like, really like that article, article, really good. This is best thing read on topic. And you're like, oh, what? okay, <laughs> broken English. They didn't read it. It's not spe- specific. What is this about? I'm like, these are pilot fish. They test and see if it gets posted. They monitor. If it does, then you are full of spam the next day. If it doesn't get posted, you don't yeah. remove it. So it's—I'm uh, uh, sure you're being bombarded by things all the time that you've automated things, trying to get reject. But in terms of manual. Intervention. Like people don't come to MetaVilter and every day and try to get incredibly angry, right? Like it's not a I know you're moderating things. Oh, (laughs) they
1: kind of do. (laughs) Is that right? But
0: I mean let's say uh uh
1: Well we're like we're like beat cops, right? Like as moderators. All we do is look at things that are being alerted to us, which is the worst of the worst. So it's like you know, a cop working in the worst neighborhood who deals twenty four hours a day with people yelling at each other and trying to kill each other thinks has no hope for humanity. I mean, after a while we would get burned out because it'd just be like, two people are yelling about Israel and Palestine. Again, the same two people that yell about it every time. And this, th- there's like, there's a person who's not allowed to mention the word abortion because she's so, uh, like militaristically pro-life about it that she fights everyone on the site. <laughs> and so like, these are things that like, I see constantly. And those are the things that's, I mean, this is sort of the intense moderation that mm-hmm. we're, we're kind of doing this slightly intense that like, you know, we're pretty serious about it. We're trying to keep people on a calm path and stuff and trying to figure out, you know, we're try, we're like precogging what the conversation is going to do at all times. So if we can see if like someone's drops a bomb in the middle of a thread, you know, sometimes it's best to get rid of it as soon as possible so that it doesn't derail the whole thing.
0: But how many posts? Is it hundreds of posts a day you have to knock out, or is it? Is no, a, no. Oh, good. it's good. Like, okay.
1: It comes out to like around one percent, maybe. I think. Oh, that's not bad
0: though. But I mean, I guess that's it's, the thing. It's is,
1: substantial, yeah. but it's not. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's like three thousand a day. There's probably something like three thousand comments a day. There's about thirty posts. We're talking just metafilter, and like you know, we might delete twenty to 30 comments Mm -hmm. out of 3000 and ask Metafilter is a lot different. Um, it's very stringent. It's more like you have to have an answer to the question. You know, if you're going to post a joke or a non answer, or you're going to question the questioners motives and stuff like that, we'll remove those. And those are pretty cut and dry and those are less than 1%. Um, and they're about the same. Yeah. So, it's not a ton but it's more than most people do um and we're super careful about it You're
0: so responsive so you're so but I guess I, I it sounds like you're trying to judge how to automate more to set thresholds a little differently and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, ostensibly the community steps up. The way you're talking about it is people may be more ready to flag or do something or alert you because they know that to keep the community the way they want, that the the financial infrastructure, financial support doesn't necessarily align as well as it used to with you guys having, you know, sub-millisecond response. Maybe it's going to be yeah. a few minutes or something. And so if the community – if that means in the past someone's like, oh, I don't need to flag it, the moderators deal with it. Now someone's like, oh, I'm going to flag that. So they take a look at it and five people flag it where one might have before, nobody –
1: Right. Yeah, that's our hope. And also there's things like, you know, at the height of Metafilter, you know, we might work three to five hour shifts and you're like, you're like staring at the matrix. Like you're looking at an Ajax page of all problematic areas in real time as they come in and you might do that for three hours intensely. Like that is the, that's the most important screen on your, on your desktop. Uh, and And the flip side is like five years ago. I would like go to Costco and shop and I'd check my phone once an hour and just go, Oh, Hey, there might be one thing. Oh, one email came in like, and that's kind of how we have to like move towards like, and using a variety of tool sets. I think we can to where it's not so intense that we have to like be staring at this thing. I mean, you might go three hours and nothing happens and, but your hundred percent of your attention is, is on the site. And, uh, yeah, like it's it's probably it was probably overkill and it might be unnecessary and I I think we can get almost all the way there with like half as much uh, effort and time. So,
0: so the future of MetaFilter sounds like, in part, that there aren't uh, you know there aren't that many alternatives. I know you have a member a lifetime membership fee that you've had out there, and I expect maybe some mm-hmm. more people have kicked in because of the uh, the news or
1: no? Yeah, yeah. So, like we did the news, and the the goal of the news was to like prepare people for a change in sort of um, staffing and a change in possibly you know tone or or activity on the site. And like I didn't even mention money. Like I was just saying, you know when we cut these positions, we will be back at break even and we could survive for another year. Like this should be fine. We'll be fine. You know, just prepare for our onslaught of new features and tools and, and roll with it. But people are dying to help. And so they just, they started when someone found like an old donation page. I set up in 2001 (laughs) to raise money for a new server, and, like, I raised, like, 1000 bucks, you know, to buy a $2,000 server. I kicked in my own money. And so there was this page. I didn't even know it was still around. <laughs> uh, and so they clicked on that PayPal thing, and then someone else was like, oh, hey, here's how you set up monthly subscriptions. There's an option in the PayPal settings to do that. So, like, you know, a few hundred, like, a couple hundred people did it in the first few hours. And I was like, holy crap. Like, this is kind of what I estimated the total support from the community would be. So we made like a, a more, you know, a a more official looking page saying, you know, you know, sign up here for monthly. I'd really love it if you join monthly, but if that doesn't work, do a one-time thing, that's great as well. Uh, and, or you can mail me a check if you hate PayPal so much. Uh, and so I think we're at we're getting close to something like $50,000 has been raised $50, in a week.
0: $50,000. Holy cow. Yeah. Well, I know that again that's a one, that's sort of a one-time thing it's a lifetime membership. Yeah, most but it shows it- the commitment people have to making this you know because they know yeah. the thing is you're so transparent it's like people know like that y- this is it's it's a combination of labor of love and small business and you're paying other people and it's you know if you were bathing in a um we come back to this again and again on this podcast like if you were bathing in a tub full of gold doubloons then pay- people might not be as sympathetic but they know that this is you're trying to make a living from this this isn't you're trying to exploit people is right. and you're what you give back and making a living is their ability to have a community that's the one they want so by uh, the money goes to a lot of places but it's not again it's not this like um the money goes to you but you are not <laughs> i, I don't know that's funny I, not that people shouldn't be rich people shouldn't make money but in a community situation i think people are so much more comfortable if they know all the pieces that are in place and they know that the money yeah. is going essentially to keep the community going not to build you know a second house or something
1: yeah and yeah and a lot of people early on pushed for like I should go to a non profit model so they could see maximum transparency and maybe you could go for weird grants that are only available to non profits but like you know that turning into a non is a humongous project with a lot of pitfalls. You suddenly have to have a, a social goal. Well, I, I'd
0: suggest there's another thing that could happen too, which is, um, in, I wouldn't suggest that you're passive in any of this. You're, there's things that are so far out of your control and you've, and as I say, like we've, you and I have both surfed on a lot of waves that other people created that wave and we're riding it and you're kind of yeah. like, I don't know how much of my own wave I can create, but it can create some and you've got the audience to go with you. But I was thinking back to like when Boing Boing, I want to say it was 2003 maybe, Probably two thousand three two thousand four, somewhere in that time frame, they suddenly became so popular that the bandwidth bill was actually, you know, starting to bankrupt the four uh, main editors yeah. who were contributing. And they went to their buddy John Battelle, who was one of the people behind Industry Standard, and a very smart guy. And they said, "Can you?" And he was kind of their band manager. I think they called him at the yeah. time. He gave them advice. They said, "Hey, we need to figure out this ad thing." And he's like, "Huh?" And he sorted something out. And then from it, founded Federated Media, which went on to become, you know, a multi hundred million dollar company and it kind of had an arc it just got sold not yeah. that long ago for 20 something million dollars which is not you know that's not chicken feed but um less than uh you know less than one would hope for but it, mm-hmm. but it it provided it paid many many millions of dollars and still pays out um advertising money like that to all these independent sites but it kind of had its 10-year arc as well yeah but i thought of that that The folks at Boing Boing were in your position. We need to do something. We are not experts in this ad world. We don't know what the future will bring, but we know we have an audience and they found the right person to help do something that then became, you know, Federated Media was paying me tens of thousands of dollars during the Wi-Fi heyday by selling advertising mm-hmm. on my site and taking a very small piece compared to traditional ad networks as well. Yeah. So I feel like there's, you're at a point where, and there's a lot of sites like you, where maybe the people that we are not, who actually understand more of the revenue audience pipe in new ways, could come along and say, okay, well, this is the next federated media. Instead of being about ads, it's about blah, and suddenly yeah. we have a whole new way of conceiving this because, because you have the audience there.
1: Yeah, it is possible. Like we're closing in on $10,000 of recurring monthly revenue from the, all these donations. So mm-hmm. like, I'm amazed. That's like fantastic. It's like a third of our advertising, you know, revenue, uh, you know, Google can go down by 10 or 20%, three and six months from now and we'll probably be okay. So like, yeah, it's gone, it's gone really well. Um, and I think we'll, I mean, I never in a million years thought a subscription for nothing with no features, <laughs> like anyone would voluntarily sign up for it. But a lot of it is like, you know, I'm cashing in 15 years of goodwill. Like it's if existential if I, subscriptions. Yeah. A lot of people, <laughs> a guy, a guy sent a check for, <clears throat> I think it was $10 a month from the day he joined in 2001 and it was like $1,600 oh or my something. Gosh. But the, like he's just like this is what I owe metaphysics. We did this at, at <laughs> Tidbits, the Mac publication
0: that Adam and Tanya Engst run. A couple years ago, we were hitting that same. We had the same inflection point as advertising was down, despite the Mac community and world being high. The companies that sell Mac stuff did not need us as much as they did in the past. Uh, there were some really dedicated people who were almost like underwriters who helped support the site. The book sales of an e-book, ebook business that was doing well, but like the whole mix of things wasn't supporting the editorial part. We launched a campaign like this. It was like, all right, you know, here are subscriptions. You get a little uh, supporter logo when you log in. You mm-hmm. can post longer comments and you 'll get some discounts and that 's it and People came through and droves thousands of people came through for a site that gets you know hundreds of thousands of monthly visits. A significant percentage came through and it helped keep, you know they 're able to then hire a managing editor and it 's propelled the site through the last uh, you know two and a half years so that I mean that is always one model but it 's uh, it's has to be one of many pieces, I think, and that's that's going forward. Yeah. You've got advertising from Google, and maybe it's going to be a different source or multiple sources in the future. You've got this sort of voluntary donation subscription, no reward except the joy of being part
1: of a community. And yeah, I guess you get a you get a small badge on your user page. Well, yeah. people like that. I put this off for two years because I was like, I could only think of three power user features that you'd get out of it. And I really wish I could give people like 10 power user features. So I never built it. And then it was like, well, why don't we just put a gold star next to supporters' names like everywhere people on the love, That's the
0: Reddit thing too. Reddit didn't but then, do like yeah. a, a star or badge or gold yeah, or something. Gold, yeah, gold. Yeah.
1: And then... And then people are like, we don't even want the star, because that would actually affect conversations. People might think that person is right, because they have a gold star.
0: Oh, so you only put it on the profile page, not next so to their... So we
1: only, yeah, we only put it on the profile page. No features. It's so funny. I would have done this two years ago if I would have thought it. you know, I don't know. But I never thought, I never thought more than a couple hundred people would pitch in, and we're up to like 1,700 people are doing the monthly and... You know, like a 1,000 people did a one-time thing.
0: I think people are much more aware now that if they don't help support something financially, even at a tiny level, that it's going to go away because we've seen things – go away yeah. over and over again and I for a long time it was like everything's free they're making money it's not my business I'm just visiting and I think people have become so invested now I mean especially where your community has people that stretch back as long as 15 years but even if it's two or five years that you've got people who don't want it to go away and, and you've told them sort of very frankly hey this is one way to help it they're like great all you need is five dollars of my money or ten or whatever yeah. and they will give a this is a kickstarter thing too is in crowdfunding people don't give because you're offering something shiny typically for products, maybe more so, but people give according to the level of their means and their interests. So someone, this one guy will give you $1,600 and someone else will give you five because they're able to, not because the guy feels compelled to give you 1,600.
1: Yeah. And I just never, I underestimated the thousands of people giving, you know, small amounts actually adding up to something substantial. Like I just didn't think there was that much of uh, yeah, investment In it, I mean, we're, we're used to like everything on the internet should be free. And then, like, when I think about MetaFilter, it's like Madison Avenue, basically underwrote the last 15 years of like a bunch of nerds goofing around on the internet and you know, some ad guys in New York are picking up the tab kind of because like members of the site don't even see the ads. It was only for non-members of the site that saw the ads. So it's like we're we're partying, we're goofing around and some ads were underwriting the whole thing and I would think like you said like seeing upcoming go away and come back and seeing like milkshake is like my I favorite know, thing I on miss earth. Them. And, and I had drinks with Andre Torres a couple nights ago, begging him. Like, I wish I could give him a bag of money to keep it around. I don't want to see it go away, but like I knew that would, you know that is the future of passion projects that can't get support. Yeah, and
0: that's where I think it comes around. You know, I just did uh, an interview that will be, I think be up a week before this one with uh, the woman uh, Ariel Stallings Meadow, who uh, oh, me- cool. Meadow Stallings, Offbeat. who does uh, uh, Offbeat Pride. and um, mm-hmm. uh, she she said, I said, could you launch? I should ask you the same question. I should ask everybody I have on the show. I said for her site, which launched in uh, say two thousand and. Nine now, I I think, I think a little longer than that. She, I said, could you launch that, the site today and make it work the way she did? And she said, Oh no, no, there's no way. Like she'd have to have launched from Facebook essentially and build everything around social media because so much of her traffic has gone there. And the website still does very well, but only because it launched years ago. She launched it today. And I think MetaFilter, like, could you launch MetaFilter today and build an audience?
1: Yeah, I mean, the only thing you point to is like Hacker News does pretty well yeah. for being like a website and a very specific thing that hits a specific audience. But that's the kind of thing I would have to do. It'd have to be more specific than that. Yeah, but you'll, yeah you use
0: verticals the verticals as opposed to the uh, the general, the general interest anything yeah. is very hard to do, and the very specific thing.
1: Um, you just have to be really patient. You just have to be incredibly patient. The more generalist your thing is, it's going to take so much longer to find an audience, and it'll be a probably a bigger audience. Because I have wide interest, but it takes forever. You have to be; it
0: has to be on the side. And
1: I've always answered that question with like, I could never launch Metal today Day because I'm not 24 years old like I was when I started working like 12, 16 hours a day on it. Like, I just have too many things going on, and like part of it is that like I couldn't. I, it would it would be on Tumblr and a Facebook group or something, but as well as like <laughs> I would need to be a young kid who had all the time in the world. That's
0: that's the that's the thing. Now we have kids, and our lives are. Are rich and full um, Matt I'm glad we finished on a happy note Which is the contribution of some membership And thank you for talking about the whole scope of your history In Metafilter and where things are at And you know I don't really have to tell people where to go To find Metafilter because it's It's, it's all around us we all live in Metafilter <laughs> you Go to Metafilter and uh, and, uh, and they can contribute You're breathing well. it right, right. now but th- Thank you for being on the show Oh you're welcome You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.